This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss concepts and genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Andreas Acosta, a Mayo Clinic physician who trained and got his MD degree from the Universidad San Francisco de Quito in Ecuador, a PhD from the University of Florida in Gainesville. He is currently an assistant professor of gastroenterology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He is board certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology and hepatology, and obesity medicine and nutrition. He is the director of the Precision Medicine for Obesity program here in Rochester. His research focus is on precision medicine for obesity and is supported by the National Institute of Health and many foundations and industry. He is recognized nationally and as an international speaker with nine patents, more than 90 peer-reviewed publications, including publications in Lancet, Gut, and Gastroenterology, and his work has been featured in the New York Times, CNN, and on NPR. Dr. Acosta, Andres, we are so very pleased to have you here today. Our topic is Precision Medicine for Obesity, From Phenotypes to Multiomics. Thank you for joining us today. Denise, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, and I'm delighted to be here, and we'll be talking about a topic that is my passion. So thanks for having me. So I've got to start. One of the things I've recognized for a long time in primary care that we talk about pandemics and endemics and epidemics, and the epidemic of obesity has been here for a long time, and we've recognized it in the United States, but it's worldwide, and it starts with our kids. Yeah. And I have to tell you that, you know, I've battled weight all of my life, and we always like to blame our parents for something. So is it true? Can I finally blame my mother for being fat? Well, we are living an epidemic of obesity, and every year is worse, and we are predicting to have, by year 2030, we're going to have 50% obesity in the United States in adults, closer to 25% obesity in kids, and this is worldwide, as you mentioned. And I wish I can just say, yes, you know, find your parents and blame on them. It's not that simple. And there is people who have obesity who do have, can call up their parents and saying, you know, my obesity is due to our genetics. Yes, mom and dad, you guys are to blame for my genetics. Some people with a very high probability that they have a genetic predisposition, some people don't. And that's what we're trying to figure out right now is who has a genetic predisposition for obesity and we can blame their obesity to their genetics and who cannot, right? Because at the end of the day, we are the interaction of our genetics and our environment. And we need to tease that apart in order to try and understand chronic complex conditions such as obesity. 
Well, and you know, I, I counsel my patients. I try to counsel them daily about what can you do? What can mm-hmm. I do in the office? What do I do for myself? And, you know, I, I like to break it down to a little bit simplistically. It's a little bit of the calories in and the calories out. So mm-hmm. some of that we have under our control. Obviously, I can't, in retrospect, choose my parents and choose my <laughs> genes. But obviously, there are some things that we can do on a day-to-day basis, be more active, make more sensible choices in our foods. But I want to know sort of what is your research finding? What are the things that we're learning about genetics that can be helpful? And, And what should we be telling our primary care providers and clinicians about what should we do? What is going on right now? And what does it look like for the future of teasing out that genetic piece? Yeah. And how will we, we be able to identify patients who might benefit from genetic input or genetic assessment of the component? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm also in the clinic talking with patients as an internist, as well as in the obesity practice. I think it's very important that they take a first step. The first step is to embrace obesity. We as primary care physicians, all physicians, and every single human being should care for others who have obesity and are struggling with it. I agree with you. The right advice is a simple diet and exercise advice the first time. But if the patient comes back three months later and that did not work, we need to ask ourselves why. And that to me is when obesity becomes a disease because we gain weight because of many reasons, but we're also able to lose weight by simple interventions. But the reality is that about 42% of us who suffer with obesity have tried diets before. You know, and there are studies that says that more than 90% of the patients who try to diet fail. And then we need to ask ourselves, why are we failing? Why, as a, such a successful human beings, that we can accomplish everything else in our lives, go to work, pay our bills, do everything else well, take our medications for other medical conditions, we cannot achieve the successful weight loss that we would like as individuals or that our physicians are recommending. So once we start talking about obesity as a disease and we put obesity in the same bucket that we put diabetes and hypertension, it should be the same thing. I'm sure when you see a patient with type two diabetes, we might recommend them, hey, do a low, decrease your amount of carbohydrates, decrease the amount of sugars and see what that can bring your glucose down. But if it doesn't, we move to the next step. Same thing we do with hypertension, hyperlipidemia and all these conditions that are affected by our environment and our decisions. So obesity should be the same. As primary care doctors, we should say, hey, try to exercise and eat healthy, calories in, calories out, whatever we believe is the advice we should be giving. But when the patient comes back three months later and we don't see the results we expected, it should be same thing as diabetes or hypertension. We should dig a little bit farther into try to understand why my patient failed. That's when we are proposing that we do a little bit more digging. Instead of just saying, here's the diet you should do, here's the medication, the device or the surgery, as the current recommendations are based on body mass index or BMI, we believe that based on our studies is that we need to do a little bit more digging and ask the question, why? Why are you struggling? Why you as a patient with obesity or why we, as many of us also struggle with obesity, why we are struggling with our weight? Why we have difficulty losing weight? Because it's very simple to say, eat less, exercise more. But then when we start doing it, there's a lot of metabolic adaptations, physiological conditions that doesn't allow us to lose the weight and keep it off. The most common one is the sensation of hunger. I start dieting and I feel more hungry. So if I feel more hungry throughout my day, 
it's very difficult to stick to that calorie that my doctor recommended or that prescription caloric wise that my doctor recommended. So what we started understanding is that there are individuals who have genetic predisposition to these conditions. For example, there's people who have mutations in our brain, in the hypothalamus. There's certain nucleus called the arcuate nucleus and the paraventricular nuclei in our hypothalamus that are our thermostat. And as we all know from, remember our days in med school, the hypothalamus regulates all the key essential things like thirst and temperature and many other things in our body. Well, it also regulates when do we eat and when do we stop eating. If we have a genetic mutation there that we can overeat or we feel hungry sooner, we're going to not listen to those cues that our body's telling us to stop eating and we're going to overeat. And when we try to diet, those cues just become more strong. So about 1% of the population have these abnormal genetic mutations from certain studies. But from a recent study that we just did at the Mayo Clinic Biobank, in which we studied 57,000 patients, and from those 3,000 of them had severe obesity, defined by BMI greater than 40 or above, we realized that in severe obesity, 10% of patients with severe obesity have a genetic mutation. So those are very interesting findings, and we just published that in obesity surgery, because it tells us that the proportion of patients with abnormal genetics is going to be higher and higher, and we're going to be able to explain the genetics in about 66% of the patients since they have a strong genetic predisposition for obesity. And if that's the case, and two of every three patients of us have a genetic predisposition, you know, we can tell them whatever we want, but the genetic is predisposed for us as humans to gain weight and preserve calories because of the survival mechanism. So we need to store eat calories and store them in the way of fat to survive. But now we live in abundance. So we don't need to store for the next famine. We just store for, for storing, right? So now that we want to lose and we're realizing all these problems with obesity and all the complications associated with obesity, it's important that we recognize that as human beings, we are prone to store calories and about 60% to 66% of us have a genetic mutations that actually are prone towards storing uh, calories based on many different studies, particularly studies on twins that have tells us this information. That's very interesting. And as you're looking at your research, are there other specific genetic mutations that you have identified that may be playing a role, especially in the patients who are at that extreme end of obesity? Yeah, we are starting to identify that in these certain individuals, particularly with severe obesity, they have certain genetic predispositions that tend to drive them to overeat. Some other genetic mutations tend you to not burn enough calories. So when we put this in the equation, we need to try to identify which are the patients who have overeating. So for example, right now, there is a company that is doing DNA testing for patients who have early onset obesity. So obesity since they were childhood, they have hyperphagia, or they just eat, feel hungry all the time, or they don't feel full. And they have severe obesity defined by a BMI greater than 40 in adults. And I'll just state for adults for now. So if you have those three conditions, you can test your patients using this test for rare genetic disorders of obesity and see whether they have these mutations. And the important thing is not just testing for testing because that doesn't help anyone. The key thing is that if you test these individuals and you identify that they have a rare genetic mutation of obesity, which at the end of the days are not that rare, 10% of patients with severe obesity, then we can act on either use medications or certain interventions might help these individuals by bypassing these genetic mutations. 
So we can do targeted therapy or bring precision medicine for obesity and then help these patients lose their weight. And also it's great for the patients because they understand that that sensation of hunger that they have been feeling their whole life has a genetic explanation. And yes, they were born with this, but finally they have an explanation. It's not like my whole family would just overeat. Is that maybe my whole family is carrying this genetic mutation. The good thing is that now we can test it and then we can treat them like we treat any other condition. So I'm curious, do you think that kind of testing is going to be beneficial in the future with helping select people, for instance, for some of the gastric bypass surgeries or other surgical interventions? There's really clear data on how that can be beneficial for treating or preventing disorders like type 2 diabetes. It's useful in patients who have obstructive sleep apnea and other complications of obesity. But I'm Mm -hmm. wondering, as you're talking about individuals who are in that 40 plus BMI category, who are often the patients who are the folks who at least I send or really encourage Mm -hmm. to look at surgical interventions, do you think that's going to be a selection criteria or be helpful at looking who's successful? Yeah. Denise, let me take a step back even before I answer your question, because the answer is yes, it will be helpful. But I think it's also important to put in context all obesity when we talk about all of us. What we have identified is that when we look at patients with obesity, there is people who have a genetic predisposition, but there's also people who do not have a genetic predisposition. And they might say, well, why have obesity? So we start studying that. And together with my mentor, when I came to do my postdoctoral fellowship during my GI training with Michael Camilleri, we start asking that question and saying, how do we understand the variability, the heterogeneity of obesity? Why I can have two patients with a BMI of 40 and they're completely different, right? So we need to move beyond BMI, beyond insulin resistance or prediabetes. So we started studying all the components of the energy balance. What do I mean by energy balance? Everything that regulates our energy intake and our energy expenditure. And we start doing it in humans. I think that's one of the strengths of the Mayo is that we study humans and patients because we wanna, at the end of the day, change the patients of the outcomes. So using that as a strength, as of today, we have studied close to 880 patients in which we measure all their food intake regulation parameters, all their energy expenditure parameters, and we do very deep understanding of their phenotype. We call it the deep phenotype. So we know how many calories they consume before they feel full. We see how their gastrointestinal tract moves the food. We see how many calories they burn. We do tons of questionnaires. We see how many activity they're doing. We check their blood, we check their stool for microbiota, we check their DNA for doing a deep and serial analysis of these patients. So once we knew absolutely everything about these patients, or as much as we can get, we said, well, how can we classify obesity? So we put all this data in the table, and then we start classifying and clustering obesity in different groups. So the first analysis that was unsupervised using machine learning told us that there were 11 types of obesity. And we published that in our journal, Gastroenterology, that is the best journal in our field. But then putting, trying to put a little bit of more supervised human intelligence into the artificial intelligence, we say, well, if we look at these 11 types, maybe we can just group them in four that will make the most amount of sense. So let me explain to you these four groups. The first one is patients that do not feel full when they start eating. We call them hungry brain. The scientific term is abnormal satiation. They just don't feel full. They go for seconds and thirds and they just keep eating. 
So it's almost like goes to an all-you-can-eat buffet and just keep eating and eating and eating and don't have that sensation of fullness. The second group is patients who eat a normal amount of meals. They feel full, but then within an hour or two, they feel hungry again. It's like they never ate. They say, I just eat something, but I'm hungry again. That doesn't make sense. They have what we call a hungry gut. Signals from the gut don't come to the brain. And the gut needs to tell us, hey, stop down, slow down. I need to digest the food that I just ate so I can absorb all those nutrients and use them to survive, right? Those gut signals are not there. So we call them the hungry gut. Then we have emotional hunger. Very simple to explain. People are eating for their emotions, either positive or negative emotions. There's a lot of reward mechanisms that are talking here. And the last group is patients who their metabolism is abnormal. Most of my patients come to see me in the clinic and saying, doc, I have a problem with my metabolism, right? These patients do have a problem with their metabolism. That's how we classify obesity in these four groups that we call them obesity phenotypes. And the reason why we use the word phenotype is because phenotypes are the interaction between our genetics and our environment. So some of these groups, for example, the hungry brain, seems to have a very strong genetic predisposition, as we were talking early with this pathway. But some other groups, like, for example, the psychiatric group, the emotional group, it might have a genetic predisposition because those things like anxiety, depression, food addiction runs in families as well, but it's other pathways who are abnormal. But then when we look at patients with the meta- metabolic abnormalities, yes, they have, we have a genetic mutation predisposition, but it seems like there's also things that have happened to our body in the metabolic status and metabolic adaptations that may affect how we metabolize energy and how we use energy and so whatnot. So it seems like some of them have a more strong genetic predisposition. Some of them might not, but at the end of the day, it's the interaction between them. So the question that you came up, and it was a long answer to come to this, is that through multiple studies, we've been able to pair medications, devices, and surgery to each of these four groups. So anyone will say, well, if you have an emotional eater, maybe we shouldn't cut their stomach and do bariatric surgery, right? I don't want them to cut their brain either, but we should tackle their emotional eating before we do surgery, which surgery might still be a good option, but we really need to focus on that reward needing behavior that the patients are seeking for food for the reward. But patients who have a hungry gut, for example, they might be the best responders for a rule wide gastric bypass. And maybe they should go a little bit quicker to have that surgery because they might benefit from that. So we start talking about precision medicine at the genetic level, but also at helping medications, devices, and surgery. So really stratifying the obesity and helping guide the best therapies for each of these individuals. I love that idea. And I've not heard obesity broken down in that way. And that makes so much sense because my own experiences, I think I've had patients who really fall into that emotional obesity category. And -hmm. sometimes I've seen them after they've come to Mayo, they've gotten a Roux-en-Y and they come back. And those are the people in my experience who are the people who regain the weight. Because maybe they never should have had that surgery. At least it wasn't the solution for their obesity because it comes back because they were motivated initially to lose the weight. They did the exercise. They did all of that. But the root of their eating was their emotions. And that's a hard one because people recognize that there is, whether it's a dopamine surge they get by eating that piece of chocolate cake yeah. or the second or third one, it is there. And it's it's really a fascinating way. So when a patient comes to see you in the obesity clinic, what's the approach? What do you do with them? 
That's a beautiful question. We have moved away completely from the one size fits all. There's no more, everyone's going to go through this program or get this med or get this surgery. The first thing I explain to my patients is obesity is a disease. Let's figure out why you're struggling with obesity. And we'll go as deep as we can go with the patients and try to understand that. And it will require testing. Like we do testing for any other condition, right? Patient comes with diabetes, we do a hemoglobin A1C, and then we start following up potential complications. Same thing with obesity. So I explain to them what we're going to do. I meet with the patients and then we do ordered testings. Once we have the results and we can put patients in one of these four buckets, or there's a fifth bucket, which is, I don't know what's going on with you. And that's okay as well. So there's five buckets. Each of that bucket will have a plan that is tailored to the individual then. In collaborations with the Healthy Living Program, with Don Hensrud and his team at the Healthy Living Program, with Mark Clark and Karen Grothy from Psychology and their teams, we have put a very strong multidisciplinary program in which each individual will receive the level of care that is needed for their individual need. Special nutrition that will be tailored to their individual needs, a wellness coach, physical therapy, and then we bring second level therapies if we need more support. We need bringing medications, devices, or surgery if we need them. The key thing is that all the patients benefit from this and all the patients are losing weight. So talking, for example, with the example of emotional eating, yeah, maybe they do not need to go to surgery immediately. Maybe we need to address their issues, but we also need to help those patients. And once they understand that you've been using food to cope with life, which is completely understandable because life keeps hitting us from one side or the other, they say, okay, well, how am I going to address that? So Mark Clark and Karen Grothy put this very elaborated program, 12-week program, together working with a wellness coach, Jamie Friend, in which they take patients with emotional eating and they reduce to half the emotional eating behavior. When we measure things like anxiety, it goes from clinically level anxiety towards eating to completely normal, going from a scale from zero to 14 that was eight to four. So when we talk about these things, the first thing to realize is that we can help all five buckets. And then we take it to the next level because patient says, why am I struggling with this? Why I have this? So in patients, for example, with hungry brain, we say, well, seems like you and your family struggle with this. Would you like to do genetics on this? Would you like to get to the next level and test a little bit more? And many of those patients says, I do, because I want to have an understanding. So one of my best examples that I like to share is one of our nurses. She was about to retire, 64 years old, struggled with obesity her whole life, up and down in yo-yo diets, had bariatric surgery, and was able to keep the weight off. But she told me something that I will never forget. She said, despite of having the weight off, every day is a challenge for me because I never feel full. I don't know what is feeling full. So we phenotype her. She had a hungry brain. We genotype her and she got a genetic mutation, a very known genetic mutation. Once I explained that to her, she said, now I understand why my whole life I've never felt full and I don't know what it feels like. Again, normal weight after surgery, but struggling her whole life. I put her on a medication to bypass this signal. And then she came back a month later and saying, for the first time in my life, I know what is to feel in full. So that's powerful pharmacogenomics at its best to help a patient who was beyond their weight. Her weight was already normal. Surgery already worked for her. But it was to help her cope with her life and understand her underlying condition, and only for her, but then for her daughters, and then probably for her grandchildren as well, that will also carry the mutation. So I think we're really changing the conversation and patients are understanding that this is a disease 
and the solution is individualized. That is a wonderful example of how really by looking at and being able to characterize a phenotype and then identifying where might there be or which group is most likely to have a genetic condition and then using your tools in genetic diagnostics to find a mutation and then other tools to really individualize the care. Because my suspicion is for that woman, now that she knows what full is, her ability to go forward and actually maintain a normal body weight is going to be much more likely because that signal is going to be there to say, you've eaten your full, push away from the table. That's something she's never had. Yep, absolutely. You know, Denise, I'm starting to use this phrase a lot, and I, I think I stole it from the nephrologist. Our nephrologist colleagues are educating us that instead of saying everybody needs to drink eight glasses of water a day, now we say, drink to thirst. And then they say, if you're thirsty all the time, you have a problem. We have all acquired that, I think, in the last decade, before we were taught eight glasses of water every day, right? I'm starting to use the same sentence. We should eat when we are hungry, and we should listen to our body, and stop when we feel full. So eat when you're hungry. If you're hungry all the time, you have a problem. You have a medical problem, and there should be an expert. You should start with your primary care doctor. But then if they cannot help you, you should come and see someone like us because it's a medical problem. So again, you eat when you're hungry and you're hungry all the time, you have a problem. So same thing as drinking water and thirst. If I can share just a little bit of my own personal journey, I made that psychological change because I recognize I am an emotional phenotype eater. Okay. But I also grew up in an environment where there was eating tied to a schedule. I have decided over the past year to eat when I'm hungry. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that by cutting out carbohydrates and eating when I'm hungry, I must be eating less because I've lost 20 plus kilos over a year by eating when I'm hungry. And I don't know that I necessarily feel full then, but I can eat to be feeling full. Mm -hmm. So I, your work is so important. I cannot emphasize that because there is an epidemic and probably 75% of the people I see in my office every single day in one way or another, if it's not them, it's a family member is struggling with some aspect of their weight. Mm -hmm. And the unfortunate part is some of these patients are very young yeah. and don't yet have health consequences. But I know after doing this job for 30 years, they will. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think what you're doing is, is beautiful. And as just as full disclosure, we haven't talked before. So I'm, that's amazing. Congrats. So Our time is closing. And to be honest with you, we could go on for probably two or three hours. <laughs> and I want to bring you back for the next step. You know, more on phenotypes and genotypes ahead. But Dr. Acosta, I want to thank you. Today, we've been talking about precision medicine for obesity. And I would say there's so much more to learn, but it's from phenotype. And we've learned today there are four phenotypes. And then there's the, I don't know, you got something else mm -hmm. to multi-omics and what we can learn. Thank you, Dr. Acosta, for your time. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. See your genes really matter. Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Acosta, for your time. I've truly enjoyed our interview and time together today. My pleasure, Denise. I really enjoyed it as well. And hopefully uh, I'll be back. <laughs>